Well, uh, we're back in our Mark series. We're back in our Mark series, and our passage for today is Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn there with me? Uh, If you don't, it's going to go up on the screen, and um, I'll be reading from the ESV. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. May God bless the reading of his holy word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Amen. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Now, uh, in the car, uh, I have a confession. Okay, I do not listen to Christian music that much. In the, I don't listen to the fish while I'm driving. I know I should, but it's just the same 12 songs over and over again. So I kind of stop. <laughs> Anyways, I'm such a hater. Um, but I actually listen to a lot of sports talk radio. I listen to a lot of sports talk radio. And it seems like every couple of days, maybe they just have to regurgitate content as well, there's a, a debate on who is the greatest Laker of all time. Who's the greatest Laker of all time? So people are old school. They talk about like the logo, Jerry West. Other like to, others like to argue for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the greatest Laker of all time. Most of the time, people are arguing between Magic or Kobe. Magic or Kobe. Uh, but now that LeBron has come to the Lakers, woot woot, uh, everyone is wondering what his legacy might become, right? What his legacy might become. But over and over again, they're, they're arguing about who is the greatest Laker of all time? Who's gonna, who should make it on the Mount Rushmore of, of, of Lakers? And so they talk about points. They talk about um, their popularity, the impact that they made on the game, on the franchise, on the city. Most importantly, they talk about championships, And so we love to compare. We love to compare and we ask, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? Um, Well, here in our passage, we see the same spirit of comparison, the same spirit of competition rising up in the disciples. And the disciples are arguing among themselves. And Mark is clear. He doesn't just say they're discussing. He actually says they are arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest among them. Now, I don't know what metrics they used uh, to determine who was the greatest, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were comparing one another's preaching ability, right? I'm a better preacher than you, right? You, 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 You stutter all the time, right? You don't have the conviction. You don't have the passion. You don't have the charisma. You don't know the Old Testament like I do. Maybe they were comparing who had the most conversions or the greatest spiritual gifts. Maybe they were arguing about who Jesus liked the most, right? Whoever Jesus likes the most, obviously, they're the greatest. But the question at hand was clear, who was the greatest? Who was the greatest? Well, in classic form, Jesus observes this, he hears this, and he uses this as a teaching moment. 
And he uses, uses this as an opportunity to teach the disciples what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. And just as the kingdom of God is paradoxical, so is the standard of greatness. In Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And so the title of today's sermon is True Greatness. And as I unpack the passage for us, we're going to see three things today. First, the misunderstanding of greatness. Okay? We're going to see the misunderstanding of greatness. Next, the, the principle of greatness. And finally, the test of greatness. Okay? So there's a misunderstanding, the principle, and then the test, all of greatness. Now, in verses 30 to 32, we have what's called the second um, of Jesus' passion predictions, okay? Jesus' passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark. The first prediction where Jesus is teaching his disciples that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to uh, die and rise again. The first time he's teaching this to his disciples, it came in Mark chapter 8. Here in Mark chapter 9, we have the second prediction. And in the next chapter, chapter 10, we're going to get the third prediction, and so, and, and in each of these predictions, there's a common structure. There's a set structure. First, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. Second, the Son of Man will be killed. Third, the Son of Man will be resurrected after three days. All three predictions follow that same pattern, a little bit of different verbiage, but that's the core structure of these predictions. And just as these predictions had a common structure, the same structure, they actually also had a common response. That as people were hearing Jesus, this great teacher, Jesus, who Peter and the disciples believed to be this Messiah, Jesus, this amazing miracle worker, as they heard Jesus talk about his suffering, his resurrection, I mean, uh, his suffering, his rejection, his death and resurrection, the common response was misunderstanding. The common response was rejection. You see, in Mark chapter 8, after Jesus talks about his passion, Peter, Peter the apostle, he takes Jesus aside and he outright rebukes him. He doesn't take Jesus aside and say, Jesus, what are you talking? He doesn't question. He doesn't press in and ask for more explanation. Peter outright rebukes Jesus for saying such a thing. Peter could not accept the idea of his Lord, his master, the Messiah, suffering such a fate. But this is where Jesus lays down the ultimate Christian diss track, right? And he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I want to highlight one important comparison between Jesus' first prediction in chapter 8 and the second one we see here in chapter 9. You see, previously, Jesus tells the disciples that the Jewish leaders will be the ones who will reject him. So he describes the elders of Israel. He says the scribes, the Pharisees, right? The, the high priests, that these are these leaders of Israel, they are going to be responsible for Jesus' suffering. But then there's a deeper sadness. There's a deeper revelation to Jesus' prediction in our passage today. What does Jesus say about his rejection? He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Do you hear that? It's, it's so poetic, and it's so melancholy. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And in this second prediction, the enemies of, of Jesus, they're not just the leaders of Israel. They're not just the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests. The enemies of Jesus, the ones who are responsible for the rejection and death of Jesus, 
It's all of humanity. It's all of humanity. It's not just one group to blame for the death of Jesus. All men, all of mankind has the blood of Jesus on our hands. Brothers and sisters, this is the sadness. This is the tragedy of the cross. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man to save men. And when he fell into our hands, when he walked and dwelt and lived among us, and when he served us, we crucified him. We rejected him. We betrayed him. We denied him. We are the ones who are guilty of sending the only sinless man to walk on this earth to die a sinner's death on that cross. And now even though Jesus' words, they seem clear, right? They're clear. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again three days later. Mark tells us in verse 32 that his disciples, they didn't understand what he was saying. But nobody wanted to look dumb. Nobody asked a follow-up. They were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to ask him what he really meant. And so they were confused, but they just kind of passively misunderstood it. In other words, their response was one of ignorance and one of fear. Now just think about that, guys. These are the disciples. It's kind of ironic for Jesus' disciples to not understand what Jesus is saying. It's one thing for the Pharisees. It's one thing for Gentiles and other people and outsiders to not understand what Jesus is saying. But his very own disciples, his 12, his hand-picked chosen ones, they don't get what he's talking about. And, and at this point, they've almost spent about two years with him. After two years of living with Jesus, learning from Jesus, you would expect them to understand the mission of Jesus. But they don't get it. To them, Jesus was the greatest teacher and miracle worker they'd ever seen. He was the greatest. And they were expecting him to do even greater things. They just didn't expect him to go to the cross. right? They wanted him to overthrow Rome. They wanted him to lead Israel to this unprecedented season of flourishing and, and power and success and revival. That's what they wanted to see. That was their idea of greatness and the greatness of their Messiah. But instead, Jesus starts talking about the cross, and it just doesn't make any sense to them. But these are the disciples. Now, what does this mean for us? I, I actually read this, and I found myself to be encouraged by their folly. Okay, I don't know if that's kind of mean or weird, but um, I think that for us, this offers us a lot of hope and grace. Because here's the reality, that, that if these disciples, like the, the core followers of Jesus, these men who spent two years with Jesus on the greatest mission trip you could ever experience, if they still struggled with understanding Jesus, that means it's natural for us to struggle as well. It's very natural for us to struggle to understand who Jesus truly is. And so if that's you today, you're not alone. You're actually in good company. Peter experienced that struggle. James and John experienced misunderstanding as well. And so sometimes I know that, that if you're, if you're, if you're like still trying to figure it out and you, and you look around and the people in your community group or the people around you, it seems that Christianity makes so much sense for everyone else, but for you, it's just not clicking. Well, one thing that we can see from Mark chapter 9 and the story of these disciples is that 
that knowing Jesus, like understanding Jesus, it really is a process. It, it, it really is a process. It takes time. It can take months and years of wrestling with God, struggling with faith, trying to figure things out. And here's the cool thing. Just as Jesus doesn't look at his disciples and throw up his hands in frustration, just as Jesus didn't quit on Peter, Andrew, James, and John, I really believe Jesus won't quit on you. Jesus will pursue you. Jesus will keep running after you and reveal himself to you. And so in this story, I actually found a lot of hope and grace for myself, for our church, and I hope that, that, that if that's kind of you today and your church is trying to figure out Jesus and you're struggling with making the points connect, right, you're in good company. The disciples have been there. We've all been there. Right? The second thing we can learn and take away from, from this, these couple verses is that the greatness of Jesus, it's really found in the cross. Okay? The greatness of Jesus is truly found in the cross. And if we look for it elsewhere, we will misunderstand greatness. If we look for the greatness of Jesus elsewhere than the cross, we will be guilty of that same folly, that same foolishness that these disciples experience. You see, Jesus isn't great simply because he can walk on water. He's not great just because he can turn water into wine, even though that is fantastic. I could have used him at my wedding, right? He's not great just because he can heal the sick and raise the dead. His greatness is that God became man, and he laid down his life for us. His greatness is found in the fact that the wages of sin is death. And he alone, through his priceless and perfect blood, was able to pay that debt for us. He was able to incur the wrath of God for us in our place. That he could reconcile sinners with a holy God. That the power of his gospel and his work and his life, death, and resurrection is able to secure everlasting life for everyone and anyone who would believe in him and call upon his name. That is greatness. That is greatness. Now let's move to our second point, the principle of greatness. The principle of greatness. Now let's, let's uh, go back to our text and from verse 33. So he and the disciples, they, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus and his disciples, they're back on the road, and they're traveling to a city called Capernaum. Uh, this is where Peter lived, and so the presumption is maybe they ended up at Peter's house. And they're hanging out there, but while they're traveling, the disciples were arguing with one another on who's the greatest. Now, why would they do this? Okay, we read this and we're like, oh my gosh, don't you know you're going to get in trouble? Right? It seems so petty and trite. We're like, oh, right? Uh, we just want to tell them, guys, you are with Jesus. You already made it into the top 12, right? What more could you possibly ask for? You're all winners. But it clearly wasn't enough for them. You see, in the Jewish mind... And I think we can kind of like relate to this. Um, rank and standing mattered. It really mattered a lot. You see, where you stood in line, the order in which your name was listed, 
right? Where you sat at the dining table, these were all indicators of your status and importance, right? Um, as Asians, you might be like, dude, that's, that's, my bit, that's my company, right? Or that's my family, or maybe even like that's our church. Uh, but um, there's a reason why, you see, James and John, they asked Jesus, hey, when the kingdom comes, can we sit at your right and at your left? Okay. And it wasn't just because they're like, oh, we just want to be close to you, Jesus, as our BFF. It's because they wanted to be greater. They wanted to be at Jesus' right and left because they wanted to be greater than the other disciples. They wanted a higher rank, a higher status in the kingdom of God. And I don't think that this passage followed Jesus' passion prediction on accident. I think Mark was intentionally contrasting the humility of Jesus with the pride of the disciples. And Mark is telling us that the disciples believed that following Jesus would lead them to privilege, not suffering. That's why they got on board, right? That's one of the reasons why they got on board. They're like, this guy is different. He has authority. He has power. If we can get on the Jesus train, right, the J train, he will take us straight to the top, right? And so they believed that following Jesus, being committed to Jesus, would lead to privilege. And when Jesus starts talking about suffering, they're like, no. They thought Jesus would lead them to glory, not sacrifice. So when Jesus speaks about surrendering his life, the disciples, in contrast, they're talking about like advancing theirs. They're like, how can we advance ours? How, how can we improve our standing? Who's going to one-up one another? But rather than shame them in public... Jesus sits down, and he calls the disciples to himself. Guys, Jesus is so shepherding. He's so personal. He's so loving. He sees their weaknesses. He sees our weaknesses, and he says, come closer. Let me explain to you what this is about, right? And, and, I, and I think we just need to remember this, because some of us, we think like Jesus is always so disappointed with us. We think Jesus is so critical and judgmental. Right? And, and, and we're like ashamed and we feel distant. But here's the reality. Jesus draws you closer. He invites you in. And this is an example. When his disciples are at their most childish and petty point, rather than just roast them and shame them and rebuke them, he says, come close. Come here. I, let me teach you about the kingdom. Let me teach you the, the principle of true greatness that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, the pathway to that is servanthood. That when you're the servant of all, that's when you are great in the eyes of God, great in the kingdom of God. And I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't just do away with the idea of greatness, okay? He doesn't. He doesn't just kind of cheaply affirm everyone and say, everyone is great. Everyone is great. Like, that's so like everyone gets a trophy and participation and kind of cheap affirmation of our day, right? Jesus would say, no, no, no. There's a such thing as winners and losers, right? There are people who are first. There are people who are last. There are people who are great and people who are not. The difference is in the kingdom of God, the metric for greatness is the inverse, the opposite of what this world says, okay? In this world, to be great, you have to win, you succeed, you're dominant, you're powerful, you're gifted. In the kingdom of God, to be great, you serve. You're willing to come in last. You give yourself away. You love and you sacrifice. I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't just do away with greatness, he redefines it. 
you and I, we become great in the eyes of God by becoming servants of all. Now, man, that's so simple. I, I wrestled with this passage because it is so simple. We know it, right? We know the Bible teaches us that. We know that Jesus says, yeah, the first shall be last, last shall be first, right? Oh, we should serve, and that's, that's greatness. Here's a problem. Um, we, it's like so hard to live out, okay? It's so difficult to live out. And I think one of the main reasons why this is so difficult to live out is because our entire culture has become a consumeristic culture, okay? I really believe that one of my greatest challenges, okay, one of my greatest challenges as a pastor leading in the 21st century, I have to stop and think, is this 21st century? Yeah. Um, my challenge for you is not an intellectual challenge. It's not about cramming more doctrine and knowledge into your head, okay? I think one of my greatest challenges is to ask, how can I take people who have been from the just cradle, right, into childhood and adolescence, into adulthood, we have just been bred to be consumers, right? We've been bred to be consumers. We've been bred to just say, what do you want? What is your heart's desire? Go on Amazon, go on eBay, go, on, or go at Etsy, or go to Target, and whatever you want, you can have it in a moment, just charge and swipe that credit card. You want to go on that epic vacation. You want to drive that car. You want to eat that meal. Grubhub, bring it to me, right? We live in the most self-serving, self-centered culture that has ever walked this earth. We are the greatest, biggest consumers there has ever existed in any generation. And the question is then, how do we live out Mark 9 when our entire lives have been about not coming in last, because if you come in last, you're not going to get into USC, the greatest school on earth, right? <laughs> not coming in last, even at the lunch line at church, right? If you just let everyone go first, there's not going to be any kimchi gukbap, or like, there's not going to be any food for you left, right? You got to get yours. You got to kind of cut, got to be aggressive. You got to know how to get your best parking spot, because if you give away all the parking spots, you're not going to find one. It's a madhouse on the, like just everything about our life experience is about like, like getting yours and not being trampled upon, not losing out, not disadvantaging your children, right? How do we live out Mark 9? And this has been my, my, my greatest challenge to kind of live out in my own life and to invite you guys in and, and try to deconstruct this culture of being a consumer and realizing that if we are going to be kingdom people, we need to be servants. We need to be givers. We need to be lovers and sacrificers and not takers, right? Not consumers, right? We cannot be both. I just want to say that. You can't live trying to put yourself first or your children first and your family first or your job first or your career first and then at the same time say, somehow I will be last as well and be first in the kingdom of God. Right? There's dissonance there. There really is. We cannot be both consumers and kingdom servants at the same time. Something has to give. Something has to give. And I don't know all the answers for you guys, I just think we have to wrestle with the reality of that tension, right? I think we just give in so immediately and quickly to consumerism that we don't even wonder, what, what, what would life look like if I didn't spend this on myself? 
What would life look like if I didn't use this time for myself? or according to my preferences? What would it look like? What difference would it make if I gave it away, if I gave myself away, my time, my treasures, my talents? What would that look like? And I just think that we just don't ask ourselves that enough. We don't press into that question and that challenge and that invitation Jesus gives us to be kingdom people and live out greatness in the eyes of God. Now, there's a test, and I love this last part. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, first is last, last is first, great in the kingdom of God. He actually issues a test. And to illustrate this point, he takes a child into his arms. Actually, he says, he, he, he brings a child, and he, says, he just brings him into the room in the center of the group. So there's all these disciples, these you know, Jewish men looking at this child, and he says, okay, here we go. We have a kid, and then Jesus takes this child into his arms. And in verse 37, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, oftentimes, when, when we read this passage, we immediately think that Jesus is telling us to be like this child. Okay? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, that is not what Jesus is meaning. Okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. As if he's, uh, yeah, if he's saying, oh, you know, you just got to, have the faith of this child, he says that elsewhere, not here, right? He's not telling us to be like this child. He's not saying, oh, this child is this perfect picture of being a servant, or this child is humble, this child is pure, this child is great in the kingdom, because here's a problem. The only people who think that children are pure are people who don't have kids, okay? <laughs> right? That's just a fact. The only people who think children are humble are non-parents, right? Single people might think that, but parents are like, man, my kids are like the most vain, self-centered, prideful, stubborn, willful little things that I've ever met, right? <laughs> Children are not servants, right? Toddlers are like greedy little masters, right? You know who are the servants? The slaves? The parents, right? <laughs> I see parents, they're like, this, you know, the like kids, like change, all that. And you're like, oh man, slaves, right? Slaves, <laughs> right? Toddlers have it made, right? Parents are the ones feeding, changing, protecting, providing. Parents are the ones who are stressed out and exhausted. And parents, beloved, sacrificial, wonderful parents, what do you get in return? Like a diaper full of love, right? <laughs> the kids grow up a little bit, you get that awesome macaroni ornament at Christmas. You're like, parenthood, right? <laughs> you get that cheap, nasty box of chocolate, right, that you actually paid for for Valentine's Day. You know, whatever flowers your kids give you is because you already bought them, right? Um, I see in the ancient world, children aren't, weren't idolized like they are today. Yeah, I just, you know, um, I'm going to go and say it. I'm going to have a baby. Yay, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're like 21 weeks, par uh, yeah, 21 weeks pregnant. We're super excited about that. I put it on Instagram and Facebook. And, but if you're not my Instagram or Facebook friend, I'm telling you now. Um, <laughs> I, I'm realizing it, right? Children have become idols. They really are. They're, they're idols. Um, I'm going to totally struggle with that idolatry. I'm going to be like, oh my, and we're going to have a boy, so I'm going to be like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. In, in Jesus' day, uh, children weren't idolized like that, okay? Uh, they weren't valued for like who they were and what they were, okay? They were actually valued for who they could become. You were valued not as this toddler 
who is helpless and defenseless, right? You are valued because maybe one day you could become a great servant in this household. Maybe one day you could become a great soldier in in the king's army, or one day you will become an heir to my estate. But here's the problem. In the ancient times, infant mortality was rampant and so prevalent, and so parents knew that, 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 that you couldn't get too attached to every single child because you could have 10, and, 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 the, and the sad reality is they wouldn't all make it into adulthood. And so adults were not so attached to babies and toddlers and children. It wasn't until they became young men and women able to work right, able to serve, able to uh, fight, able to X, Y, and Z, that then they started to have their value, right? But up until then, they're like a messy nuisance and an extra mouth to feed. And so in their day, in their time, children were considered like the lesser members of the community, right? They really were kind of like disregarded, okay, for what they were, okay? They were only valued for what they could be, Right, later as adults in life. But this shows Jesus' real point. Okay? This shows Jesus' real point. That if you have the heart and willingness to serve the least of these, these children that, that the community tends to like disregard, these children that the community tends to say, like, I don't even know if that kid's going to live. I don't know if that kid has really that much intrinsic value and worth. If you're willing to love the least of these, if you're able to serve them and sacrifice for them without expecting anything in return, if you're able to serve purely out of love and devotion, not to garner greater power or privilege, that is the heart of God. That is true greatness. That's when you're serving like Jesus. Because the reality is this. We are the ones who are like that child. Compared to God, God Almighty in his perfect and heavenly throne, compared to Jesus Christ, the word of God, the image of the invisible God, we are the ones who don't deserve any attention, who don't deserve any love, who don't deserve any affection, and yet Jesus Christ looked upon us and our lowly estate, and he loved us. And he served us. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. This is greatness. When you can look at other people, people who are widows and orphans, people who are on the fringes, people who are hurting, people who are your, that you may consider your enemies, people that you might judge and say, you are a Samaritan or you are worthless and, and I don't know you and I don't care about you. And suddenly you can say, I will love you. I will serve you. I will care for you. Why? Because this is what Jesus Christ has done. That's greatness. Brothers and sisters, uh, I've been serving in our church now and going on my fifth year and and it's weird. We, we've seen, like, amazing growth, okay? Uh, when I first came, we are like, 100-something people. Uh, this summer, we, like, consistently hit 300 people. Um, that's awesome. I thank God for it. But that's not what I'm most proud of at our church. Um, our offering, you know, our finances, it's tripled over the last four years. That's crazy, right? That's crazy. Um, I thank God for that but I'm not that proud of it. You know, and, and I've, I've really been praying through this, checking my heart. You know, if I, if I, I, I'm really careful not to say, oh man, I'm better 
as a pastor. I'm more valuable. I'm more significant as a pastor uh, because now we have 300 versus the, the guy who has 30. My friends who are serving faithfully at churches with 50 or 70. Uh, I'm not proud of those things, honestly. Um, but there are moments as, as a pastor of this church, I can just distinctly remember this unique feeling of pride. Like I, I, just moments when I was just so proud of our church, so proud of you, so proud to be your pastor. And, and those moments have been moments, not when we're just like hanging out and, 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 and like eating and, and playing basketball. I know the basketball league was awesome this past summer. And, and I, I love following you guys on social media and I, and I see you guys go on vacation together. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I love seeing you guys like grab milk tea and, 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 and grab dinner together. And, and, the, and I'm really happy in those moments. But the moments I've been most proud to be your pastor is when I've seen you guys radically serving and loving our community. The first time this happened was uh, uh, two years ago when there was a raging wildfire through Silmar, Pacoima, uh, La Crescenta, Burbank. And the women and residents at Hope Gardens, they had to evacuate because the fire was coming, just rolling down the hills into their valley. We became a house of refuge for them. They were here. We, we clothed them, right? We fed them. We cared for them. I saw men and women, students, take time out of, of work, take time out of their busy schedules to come on this campus and say, what do you need? Do you need cases of water? Do we need to go pick up sleeping bags? Do we need to go pick up air mattresses? Whatever it might be. And I just saw our church rally together to serve. And that was the first time I really experienced this like, this like weird pride as a pastor. But it's when you guys were serving. And then this past summer, I like really experienced that same thing again. Then I, as I visited Hope Gardens and I saw so many of you just loving these children, loving these women and really being present. You guys were doing so much more than just putting on a program. I really sense your affection your care, your presence for them. And I was just so proud, proud of our church, proud that, that lawyers, that counselors, that artists, that teachers, that you guys would take your time, like your billable hours, and you would take and sacrifice it and say, I will serve my neighbor. I will serve the least of these. And it was beautiful. And then the very next week, man, it, it, we had the, one of the hottest summers like that I could ever remember. And, and we're in August, and I'm like, oh, man, it's Hope Garden. I mean, it's Chapel of the Hills. And, and if you've been here for like, you know, as long as I have now, four years, Chapel of the Hills, that announcement comes up every month. And you almost get kind of ear deaf, deaf to it. You're like, oh, Chapel of the Hills again, but I'm not going to go, right? <laughs> Hottest weekend, like of August. I'm like, I don't know if anyone's going to go. So as lead pastor, I'm going to go. Right? I'm going to show up. Right? I'm going to be the example. I go, and, and, and we had like 20 people, 20 people just serving, prepping food. And what was most beautiful was, once again, it just wasn't a program. I just saw our church members sitting down for an hour and a half with the homeless and destitute members of our community and just loving them hearing their stories, learning their names, praying with them, and I was so proud to be your pastor. 
You see, if you ask parents who have multiple kids and you say, when are you most proud of your children? Okay. They won't say, oh, it's, it's when they are individually succeeding. They'll actually say they are most proud of their children when they see their children help one another. When they see their kids, like an older sibling, like tie another kid's like, like shoelace or teach them how to do X, Y, and Z. When you see siblings protecting one another, defending one another, serving one another. And, and as a parent, I've heard that this is when you're just so in love with your children. So you're like, what do you want? You want ice cream? I'm so proud of you. What do you right? But that's a pig. Not, not just when one wins the award and the other is like lost, like, like trapped in a closet. And you're like, oh, I'm glad you're taking care of yourself, right? But when you see them, and I, and I believe that that's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. And this is why Jesus says, when you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. This is why Jesus says, when you care for these children, you're caring for me. When you're caring for these children, you're showing your love, your service, your affection, your devotion to our Father in heaven, and he delights in you. That is the heart of God, church, for us to serve one another. That's what makes God so proud of his people, knowing that we will care for his weakest children, knowing that we will protect his most defenseless children. We will provide for the least of his children. That's when he is most glorified. That's when he'll be most proud of us. So brothers and sisters, will you consider service? Will you consider service not out of convenience? I think there's too many of you who serve only who you want to serve. There's too many of you who serve only when you want to serve. Right? I'd just like to to re- this is not a guilt trip, okay? This is not a guilt trip. This is a, an invitation to reconsider. Are you serving like Jesus? Would you consider serving like Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? For when we do that, that's when we'll be a great church. When you do that, that's when you will be a great disciple. When you become a servant of all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the the work that you alone are doing in our church, the hearts that you are stirring, the invitations that you are mapping out for us, that we might become servants of all, that we might serve one another here at church as a community of faith, opportunities you are giving us to to serve our neighbors here in Sunland and Silmar, invitations you are always giving us to, to serve our classmates, our coworkers, our neighbors, our family members. Lord, we confess that in so many moments, in our flesh, we don't want to be servants. We would rather be served. We don't want to sacrifice. We'd rather consume. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We we want to live according to our own preferences. But I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would in those moments convict our hearts. That your Holy Spirit would remind us of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would remind us of of the great promise that truly when we become servants of all, we are great in your eyes, great in your kingdom. And so, Lord, um, would you continue to invite us in? We thank you that you're patient with us when we misunderstand. We thank you that you're patient with us when we fail, when we wander. We thank you that you are always faithful even when we're faithless. 
just pray that, that you just keep guiding our steps. You keep challenging us, keep inviting us, and help us to respond by faith. Help us to respond um, as followers of Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.